Chapter 20 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Comrades When the boys reached the camp, bursting with eagerness to tell Plimpton of their great discovery, they found it empty. His fishing rod was gone, and they at once guessed that he was trying his luck at the riffle that had furnished Walter and Hal with such sport. I hope he has as good luck as we did, said Hal. Do you know, Walt, somehow I feel differently about Sister. We started out with the idea that he had a yellow streak in him. Perhaps he has, but it begins to look to me as if it would prove to be yellow sand. And you know yellow sand is sometimes gold. To be real honest with myself, I must own up that I didn't want to like him in the first place. I wanted Tug Benson on this trip, and it made me rather sore to feel obliged to take a tenderfoot along instead. "'and if you don't want to like a fellow, "'it's pretty easy to find lots of things against him. "'We hadn't any real right to look down on him "'because he is weaker physically than we are. "'Do you know, I begin to think that he showed up better "'than we did on the carries. "'He lugged just as much as we did, "'but he wasn't silly about it "'and didn't kill himself trying to show off.' "'Walter grinned a trifle sheepishly. "'We were the silly ones, all right,' he said. "'Hell, I feel the same as you do.' We just didn't give Ed a fair show in our own minds. We ought to have known Lewis well enough to have been sure that he knew what he was about, and then unless he saw signs of pay dirt, he wouldn't have taken any chances on spoiling a trip like this for the rest of us. Good old Lewis. You remember what he said about Plimpton? Needs experience and good company. Well, he's had the experience all right, but I guess he might have had better company. By the way, we were responsible for him being called sister. He has never peeped about it, but I guess it is hurt just the same. I know it would have hurt me. Yesterday Woodhall asked me if I didn't think that Plimpton had earned the right to be called by his own name and suggested that we would be a little more in accord with the true scout spirit if we dropped the nickname. Perhaps you noticed that I called him Ed today? Hal nodded. Yes, he said. I did notice, and I was glad of it. I've meant to do the same thing myself, but I've called him sister so long now that it just slips out. Fact is, I liked the little beggar in spite of the fact that I didn't want to and tried not to. Same here, replied Walter heartily. More than that, I'm ready to let him know it. Let's go hunt him up now and tell him so, and also about the mine. There's just one thing that I wish, and that is that he wasn't such a fraidy cat about snakes. I know he can't help it, and I haven't any right to feel that way, but somehow I can't shake the feeling. Come on. The boys told Woodhall where they were going. He watched them disappear in the brush. There are two of the cleanest, whitest youngsters I know, and the fairest-minded. It's queer they can't see their injustice to Plimpton, and what a game fight the youngster has put up. Poor little chap. He's had more to contend with than either of them ever dreamed of, because of the curse of nervous timidity with which he was born, and which has been fostered all his life. But he's got a grip on himself now, and those boys ought to see it after that experience on the mountain. If they don't, they must be blind, and I give it up. Woodhall sighed as he finished. Meanwhile, wholly unconscious that he was a center of thought with all his comrades, Plimpton was casting for bass at the head of the riffle. The warm afternoon sun slanted through the treetops, and flashed from the polished surface of the spoon as it whirled through the water. He had taken four nice fish, 
and now the finny warriors lurking in the black depths of the pool on the edge of the swift water seemed to have become suspicious, but the boy appeared not to notice. Indeed, so far were his thoughts from the matter in hand that, but for the swiftness of the water, his forgotten spoon would more than once have gone to the bottom, where there was danger that it might become hopelessly fouled. Occasionally he looked wistfully up at Mount Tucker. He wondered what his comrades were doing up there and what they had found, and suddenly a great wave of loneliness swept over him. It was not the loneliness that had struck terror to his heart when he had realized that he was lost up there on the mountainside. It was a different loneliness, quite different, yet no less real. It was loneliness of the heart, the hardest kind of loneliness to bear. Woodhull was his hero. Him he idolized, as is often the way with a younger boy to whom an older boy has been kind. Walter and Hal he admired and liked, and with all the hunger of a lonely heart he longed to be liked in return. He had tried so hard all through the cruise to win their regard. No one, unless it was Woodhull, even guessed at the battle he had fought to overcome the foolish fears, amounting at times almost to terror that it resulted from his too active imagination under the stimulus of the, to him, strange forest surroundings, together with the element of danger which is ever-present for the uninitiated. The first test had come with the running of the rapids, the first day out. It had required every bit of sand he possessed to sit still and swing his paddle in the midst of that tumult of water, despite his knowledge that Woodhull would not run any serious risk. It had been a battle against a deep-seated inherited fear of the water. But he had won, and since then he had regarded the water with an entirely different feeling. Somehow he had become subconsciously aware that the others, Woodhall accepted, expected him to be a quitter, and more than once he had taxed his strength to the utmost to prove that he was nothing of the kind. But every effort seemed to have ended in failure. Walter and Hal were kind to him, but all the time he was acutely aware that they looked down on him as a weakling. They never said so in so many words, but there was that hateful nickname, Sister. How little they guessed the sting of it. If it had been a term of affection, he wouldn't have minded it in the least, but he knew that it wasn't. It had originated in contempt for his weaknesses, and so long as it was used, there could be none of the true spirit of comradeship for which he so ardently longed. Since his experience on the mountain, he had become aware of a change in the attitude of his comrades. There had been a warmth in their greetings hitherto lacking. He felt in his heart that he had acquitted himself well, and though he was sure that he had in large measure retrieved himself in their eyes, there was still a constraint. He was not really one of them yet. If only they had urged me to go this morning, he muttered as he reeled in his line. I wouldn't have gone anyway because I wasn't fit, but if only they had shown that they really wanted me along. I've tried to make good with him, but what's the use? I've done all I can, he ended bitterly. He turned to pick up his fish, preparatory to returning to camp. The sun, falling through a break in the trees, lay full upon a flat rock behind which he had laid the fish. His attention was caught by a coppery gleam, for a few seconds of fascinated horror he gazed at the coils of a large snake which had chosen the rock for a sun-bath. Aroused by the boy's movement, the snake had raised its head and was now regarding him with the unwinking stare peculiar to the serpent tribe. 
meanwhile continually darting out its slender, forked tongue. All the old familiar horror swept over the boy. With a half-shriek he turned and fled, heedless of what lay in his path. For some distance he plunged through the brush. With a safe distance between him and the snake he began in a measure to recover his self-control. Presently he stopped. Little nervous chills were still running over him, and involuntarily he shuddered. It was then that inside him began a new battle, the battle between the old nerve-ridden self and the new and heartily won manhood. "'You're a coward,' said a small voice. "'No, you're not. You can't help it,' said another. "'Go back and fight it out,' said the first. "'What's the use?' said the second. "'No one has seen you.' "'and you don't have to tell them at camp you caught any fish. "'You know you can't face that snake. "'Besides, what's the use? "'Probably he's harmless and it won't do anyone any good to kill him. "'Yes, it will. "'It'll save your own self-respect,' said the first. "'Wait a while and perhaps the snake will go away, "'and then you can get your fish,' said the second. "'Quitter,' taunted the first. "'Plumpton put down his rod, and with his scout-knife, cut a stout but limber stick. Setting his teeth, he slowly retraced his steps until he reached a point where he could see the flat rock. The snake still lay there, now partly uncoiled. The old fear and repugnance seized him again. "'Leave him alone,' whispered the tempter. "'No one will be any the wiser.' "'And brand yourself as yellow,' taunted the new self. The boy waited no longer. With white face in which determination was written, he darted forward and struck blindly at the ugly head which had been raised at the sound of his approach. The blow was only a glancing one, and the snake, finding itself cornered, darted forward. Again Plimpton struck. And then, seeing that his antagonist was disabled, he blindly and feverishly rained blow after blow on the wriggling reptile long after life had been beaten out of it. At last... From sheer nervous exhaustion, he stopped and with a half-sob, half-laugh, sat down to get control of his shaking nerves. I did it! I did it! He said hysterically over and over again. He had done it. He had done more than at first he realized. Presently, he chanced to look in the direction of his late foe. Motionless for the tip of the tail, which reflex muscular action still kept twitching. He was surprised and delighted to find that though he had felt the same old repugnance, it was his feeling alone that possessed him. With it was none of the fear which hitherto had always mastered him at every sight of a snake. Slowly he arose, and with his stick poked the body of the reptile. It was perhaps three feet long. To think that a little thing like that should ever have made me run, he muttered, a blush of shame mantling his cheeks. But I never will again he added with a strange, sweet sense of triumph. I wish your brother would come along right now, just so I could prove it. It was just at this instant that a shout from the rear made him start guiltily. Oh, you had? rang the hail. For just an instant he stared in bewilderment, for he had supposed himself wholly alone. And then again it was the first time in weeks that he had been addressed by his given name, or rather a diminutive of it, save by Woodhall, and he could hardly believe that the hail was meant for him. "'Oh, you Ed!' There was no mistaking the warmth and cordiality in the combined voices this time, and with a queer little lump in his throat he replied as Walter and Hal appeared in sight. "'What luck, old scout?' asked Walter as the two boys came up, 
and then, without waiting for a reply, he exclaimed as he appeared to see the victim of the late fray for the first time. "'By Jove! I thought you were the fellow who was afraid of snakes!' "'I, I am!' replied Plimpton, and added hastily, "'At least I was. And here you are going off by yourself and killing copperheads,' continued Walter. "'That's a big one, too!' "'Oh, he isn't so very big. I don't believe he's over three feet long,' protested Plimpton modestly. "'But three feet is about as big as a copperhead ever gets, and he's got poison enough in that ugly fat head of his to kill us all the kingdom come,' said Walter. Plimpton regarded his victim with new interest. "'I didn't know he was poisonous,' he confessed. "'I've been feeling kind of mean to think that I killed a harmless creature, but I—I I just had to,' he ended lamely. "'And it's a good thing you did,' replied Walter. "'Just take a good look at him so that the next time you see one you'll know it. "'You too, Hal, for I believe you told me the other day you had never seen a copperhead. "'Excepting for an occasional rattlesnake, it is the only poisonous snake we have in the North, "'and it should be killed whenever met with. "'All other snakes are harmless and beneficial rather than otherwise, "'destroying a great amount of vermin. "'The copperhead isn't as poisonous as a rattlesnake.' but a bite may prove fatal unless given prompt and proper treatment. Ed, old boy, you did a good job with this fellow. Bully for you. If the professor is through, we'll tell you what brought us over here, Hal broke in. I yield the floor, said Walter, making a pass at Hal. It's about what we found in the cave, but before we tell you about that, we want you to know that we think we've been a couple of cads, and we want to set ourselves right with you. We got it into our heads somehow that you were a quitter, and, and I guess we just looked down on you because you ain't as strong as us. Hal was blurting out his confession regardless of grammar. We want you to know that we are most awfully ashamed of ourselves, and that we are not going to call you sister any more, and, and, and we wish we felt sure that we would have done as well as you did if either of us had been lost on the mountain the way you were, finished Walter as Hal hesitated. "'Will you shake hands and forgive us?' "'It was a question which was the most embarrassed, "'Plimpton or his companions. "'The former felt the tears very near the surface, "'and he gulped once or twice to keep them back, "'but they were tears of pleasure. "'I... I... there isn't anything to forgive,' "'he stammered as he held out his hand. "'And I don't mind now if you do call me sister. "'Truly I don't. I... I what did you find up in the cave?' The change of topic was so abrupt that all three burst out laughing, and this snapped the tension. Walter and Hal at once plunged into an account of their morning experience, and in their eagerness and excitement talked so fast and interrupted each other so often that it was a wonder that Plimpton could make head or tail out of the story, but he gathered the main facts, and that his companions regarded him as a real discoverer of the lost mine. Now let's get a move on and hurry back to camp so you can see the old rifle and powder horn and all the other things, Walter finally wound up. Woodhall, busy about the camp, paused in his work as the sound of boyish voices singing reached him. For he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow, which nobody will deny. The voices were Hal and Walter's, and a minute later the three boys appeared on the edge of the clearing. Walter was in the lead with a dead snake hanging limply from a stick held before him. Plimpton was next, grinning happily with a string of bass in one hand, 
and Hal brought up the rear, carrying Plumpton's rod and singing lustily. Lewis smiled. I knew those youngsters were all right, he murmured. True scouts in thought and deed. Aloud he exclaimed, Hello, who met the serpent in the wilderness? Edward, shouted Walter and Hal in unison, and then proceeded to paint a vivid picture of how they had found him standing in triumph above his victim. What they didn't tell was how, approaching unseen, they had witnessed Plimpton's mad flight when he had first discovered the snake, his battle with himself, and finally his victory over both the snake and his own fears, and how they had stolen back away and hailed him from a distance, that he might not suspect that he had been seen in his moment of weakness. Of the remainder of that cruise there is little to tell. Camp was broken the next morning, and a regretful farewell bidden to the scene of so much adventure and romance. The weather continued good, and four days later the little village where they were to take the train for home appeared in view just as the sun was setting. It had been planned to go to a hotel that night, but at the earnest pleading of all three of the younger boys, Woodhall consented to one more camp, and for the last time the tents were pitched. As they sat around the campfire after supper, Woodhall brought out the souvenirs of the lost mine on Mount Tucker to divide them, it had already been decided that the rifle and powder horn were to go to Woodcraft Camp with a copy of the legend and an account of the finding of the relics. By unanimous vote of the other three, Plimpton was given the shilling, despite his protest that he was not entitled to it. The knife Woodhall accepted after all the others had refused point-blank to touch it. The arrowheads and the garnets were equally divided, Hal suggesting that each have one of the latter made into a stick-pin as a memento of the best vacation four boys ever had. Late they sat in the glow of the fire, loath to seek their blankets for the last time, and over them brooded the spirit of perfect comradeship. Woodhall finally broke the spell. All hands turn in, he ordered crisply. It'll be a long journey tomorrow, and we want to be prepared for it. Reluctantly they sought the tents. The fire burned lower, and the shadows crept closer. The stars twinkled down between the interlacing treetops. "'Good night, Ed,' murmured a sleepy voice. "'Good night, Walt.' "'Good night, Ed. Good night, Hal.' A log broke in the glowing embers and sent up a shower of sparks, and then quiet and perfect peace reigned in the hearts and over the last camp of the Boy Scouts on Swift River. End of chapter 20 End of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess Recorded by Keith Salas